Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. This is The Athletic Baseball Show on The Athletic Podcast Network. Welcome to the 3-0 Show, part of the Athletic Baseball Show. Derek Van Riper, Eno Saris, Bricciaroli, all back together. It is Friday, May 20th, as I mentioned yesterday. A little switcheroo in the order for this week. Keith Law had his first mock draft of 2022 out, so we changed the order to talk about that the day that it came out, which gave us an extra day to gather our thoughts. And what we're going to do today is focus a lot on possible breakouts, both among hitters and pitchers. We're going to talk about players still being upset with the baseball. The complaints have changed slightly compared to the past. That's why I think it's still pretty interesting to talk about it. And we're going to begin today with Max Scherzer walking off with an injury on Wednesday night. At the time of this recording, early Thursday afternoon on the East Coast. We don't know the extent of the injury yet. It's been described as a left side injury. And Scherzer has had an MRI, but maybe we'll get the results as we're rolling along. Uh, Britt, you haven't seen Max Scherzer walk off the mound very often, and usually when he does, it means something is actually wrong. Left side injury immediately makes me think it's probably something connected to the oblique, but uh, what's the situation here, and, and how well prepared do you think the Mets are to be without him for maybe at least just a few turns in the rotation? Yeah, having covered him in D.C., guys, watching him say, I'm done, means he can't pitch around or through whatever the injury was. And he's pitched around or through tons of things. This guy pitched with a fractured thumb for parts of a season, uh, a broken nose, a black eye, a back issue, a hamstring issue. Um, so I thought the same thing, Derek. I thought oblique. And that's not great. I mean, you're, you're happy it's not the arm, right? Except the Mets are already missing Jacob deGrom. It looks now like July on Jacob deGrom is the best case scenario, not June. So you can't really afford to be without Max Scherzer for any length of time. And the thing with obliques is they're those pesky injuries that you can't really test because if you test them, you could potentially re-injure it. So it takes much longer than people realize to come back from an oblique injury. I'm hopeful that maybe it's just something with his back locking up uh, that caused that side to feel a little tight. Um, But again, he's such a tough guy that it really, really is concerning. And no, the Mets do not have enough to cover for him and DeGrom being out. Uh, I think if DeGrom was closer to a return, yeah, you'd feel a little better about this. But if you're a Mets fan and you're perennially thinking, why us? Worst case scenario, you are really waking up this morning thinking, why us? This is the worst case scenario. Yeah, and it's also bad news that Tyler McGill has, uh, you know, right biceps tendonitis uh, and is shut down for a little bit right now. Uh, because he was such a kind of an uh, he stepped forward and was that young player that can provide teams depth. Teams use seven pitchers on average, seven starting pitchers on average uh, in bulk. Uh, use ten uh, or eleven on average over the given season. The Mets are going to push that number. I bet you they'll be above it. Uh, the good news, I guess, is that David Peterson and Trevor Williams are, I would consider, major league depth pieces. They are, they are. It gets worse around the league, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, Trevor Williams is a kind of a low stuff, high command guy, uh, but right now he's he's found a way to get first pitch strikes and uh, make the most of his arsenal. David Peterson uh, has a little bit more stuff, a little bit more wild. Uh, but he is a lefty at least, so maybe he'll, they can uh, use him in some good matchups. Um, and between the two of them, maybe just skate by and play 500 ball, you know, for a month, um, you know, while they're while they're waiting for the two aces back. I think, I think they've built, uh, you know, enough wins in the schedule so far that they'll still be fine. But I do not think that they will uh, play at the same rate that they've been playing for the next month i mean without both their aces it's just going to be it's going to be one of those sort of like 
hold on tight and and you know see how many winnable win- games we can get and and uh, don't worry about the rest. It's going to come down to a few different things. I think it's going to come down to Taiwan Walker pitching better than he has to this point. Carlos Carrasco sustaining his effectiveness. He's not vintage Carrasco with the high K rate, but he's not walking guys, keeping the ball in the park. He's pitching well enough. So if he either ticks up a little bit or at least holds what he's done, that goes a long way. And then Chris Bassett, you know, that move that they made post lockout, that was a huge addition. That's turning out to be extremely important for them. He's the for the next month plus. (laughs) Yeah, temporary ace. I mean, I think it's that, it's that combination of Scherzer and DeGrom being down and then McGill on top of that because mm-hmm. McGill had for a little while really done a good job of looking like DeGrom as much as anyone else can look like Jacob DeGrom. I think the thing that would keep me upright if I were a Mets fan is that these are not the Wilpon Mets. These are the Steve Cohen Mets, and that probably means that they're back on the phone trying to add another starting pitcher, whether it's Frankie Montas or or someone else. I mean, they have the pipeline from Oakland already open. They already made the deal to get Bassett. So just go to those old calls, call them back up again. Maybe you can add Frankie Montas to the equation as well. Plus the offense is good, right? They could score runs in bunches. So it might be a stretch where they simply have to out hit their pitching. Britt doesn't agree on the offense side necessarily. Eh, I think Lindor needs to step up. If Churcher's going to be hurt and DeGrom is going to be out, Lindor needs to play like a superstar not a league average player. And after a really hot start, if you guys notice his stats lately, there's been a lot of talk in New York about should they move him down the batting order? What do they do with him? He keeps coming up in big spots and not coming through. So maybe rather than looking at this as like, how do we fix the pitching? It's like, how do we fix Francisco Lindor, who's already here, who's already get paid a lot of money, who I think is signed for nine more years. That maybe becomes the focal point in a world without Scherzer. Yeah, I think the... The last few weeks have not been kind to Lindor after what looked like a great start. And he could still have that full bounce back season where he looks like the guy we saw at the end of his time in Cleveland. What continues to surprise me, and this is the result of the offensive environment that we're in right now, Lindor is now at 231 with a 329 OBP this season and a 395 slugging percentage. That's 14 percent better than a league average. Better than what, league average. What on earth? That's not. It's not. Like it looks bad. Like I see that line. I'm like, oh, that's that's brutal. And like that's better than average. It's not just a little better than average. 14 percent better than league average. But I think the the thing that makes this Mets offense a problem for opposing teams to deal with is that they're not as top heavy as they have been in the past. You think about Nimmo, Alonzo, Marte, McNeil, Canna. It's balance, and they've got a couple guys like J.D. Davis who've actually hit the ball really hard and haven't been rewarded yet. So there's a couple things that can still begin to go right for them as far as putting runs on the board that maybe haven't gone right. Lindor is the biggest one. If they get Lindor to play like the star that many of us think that he is, that's huge. And the timing really wouldn't be better if he started to get back into that level here in these next few weeks. One thing I really like about the lineup, though, you know, I, I know that it has its flaws, but every every lineup right now is, you know, other than maybe the Yankees is, is struggling to, to score runs, is that um, it's very different. It's a varied lineup with varied approaches. You have Pete Alonso, you know, the big polar bear masher type, you know, and then you got Eduardo Escobar and Brandon Nimmo, who are pesky take their walks, you know, then you have Starling Marte, total free swinging, doubles hitter, dynamic on the base pass. And they have Jeff McNeil, who's like the the best singles hitter you could ask for. You know what I mean? Just the, a guy who can make contact with any ball anywhere. Uh, and then you have Kanha, who's like a, you know, master of getting hit by pitches. <laughs> so it's like, you know, it's, it, it's no matter what, the other team is throwing at them one or two or three players in that lineup are going to have a strength against them is how I see it. You know, you got high ball hitters, you got low ball hitters. I like, I like the diversity on that lineup in terms of the different types of approaches. So I know that it's uh, you know, the another thing that masks uh, their ability is uh, city field is much more of a pitcher's park. I think than some people realize it's, 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 it has been playing uh, as a very pitcher friendly. And so, yeah. you know, it's, it's a little bit difficult for hitters there. Speaking of, of offenses that are underperforming, though, the Blue Jays, this is a pretty big surprise. I know it's mid-May, but about 40 games in is when you can start to look at teams and, and diagnose actual problems a little more effectively. I feel like what we do for the better part 
of the first month of the season is we say, it's just too early. It's too early. Here are some numbers, but it's still really too early to read into them. What are you thinking right now if you are running the Blue Jays? Do you look at this and say, this is the worst 40-game stretch this offense could possibly play to this point? I mean, right now, they're just under the league average in terms of WRC plus as a team. 97 is the number. That's a 234, 300, 378 line. This is a team that has that varied approach. They have a lot of different types of hitters. This is a team that should be among the league leaders in runs scored per game and WRC plus. And they're not there. They're not with the Yankees and the Angels and the Dodgers and the Astros right now. But I guess my question for both of you is, do you think they get there without shaking anything up, without making any sorts of, of major additions? I mean, what do you think, you know? It is weird. They are 24th in the big leagues in run scored. That is weird. That is weird for me. But, you know, there's some process stats that still look okay for them. They're top 10, uh, maybe 11th or 12th, actually, in barrel rate. So that means they're hitting the ball hard and in the right angles. Uh, they're just not getting rewarded for it. They're, you know, when it comes to hard hit rate, just how hard they're hitting the ball, they're actually second in the big league. So, you know, can they can they lift some more of those hard hit balls? Um, where I see a problem is in the plate discipline. They are free swingers this year. Maybe they're pressing as a team. They're seventh in swing rate. And when it comes to chasing balls outside the zone, they're in the top 10. So between those two things, uh, you know, there they there is something under the hood that doesn't look great. They're being a little too aggressive. And some of that is just personnel. Bo Bichette is an aggressive guy. He's going to swing a lot and he swings at pitches outside his zone. It's just who he is. But, you know, Vlad Guerrero is not that guy. <laughs> you know, he's very disciplined and Springer is normally very disciplined. The, I, you know, I never, I'm never like calling for, you know, firings or shakeups and I'm not that kind of person, but I will say this, the one way that hitting coaches have the most effect on a team is when it comes to swing rates and chase rates. That's what the research says. So if they feel like their 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 hitters are swinging too much and chasing too much, that is actually one place where a hitting coach change can make a difference. Interesting. Yeah, I, I agree with all those points. You know, I think what's surprising too when you look at the offensive numbers is that is their inability to hit with runners in scoring position. I think they're right around last in the majors. Uh, they were at least earlier this week when I checked, um, and so that kind of shows the frustration as well. Like guys are aggressive. Uh, they're getting into these situations so rarely, and it tells you that they're pressing, right? They're not able to come mm -hmm. through. You've seen the outward frustration. You've seen guys break bats. Uh, you've seen them go up the tunnel, and you, you know what happens there. It's nothing good. <laughs> uh, they're, they're unloading. So even when Toronto was off to like a hot start and winning series, they were doing it in spite of their offense. So I think that's why you're more concerned than you would be if this was just a three- to four-week like lull, right? Like, no, they, they haven't really shown signs – even early on, and here we are approaching the quarter mark, which is around Memorial Day usually, uh, and they haven't really shown those signs at all. It's not like the Mets with Lindor were like, okay, he showed signs, then he went into a slump. Um, we haven't seen Toronto at all, so I don't know what the answer is. I know they've shuffled the lineup a little bit. Uh, I don't know if you make personnel changes um, I don't know if you make player what personnel changes. personnel changes are there to be made? You know? Well, you mentioned the hitting. You mentioned the hitting. Oh, coach. oh, I meant, I meant like I thought you were talking about players. Yeah, the players are locked in. <laughs> Player, I don't think you make changes. This team was kind of set up. They made a lot of moves in the offseason. A lot of people had them as one of the winners of the winter. Um, yeah. I don't think you make player changes. I think yeah. you shuffle the lineup around and hope that as it gets warmer and the balls become a little less undead. Yeah. That you can, can convert here a little bit. But again, everyone's playing with the same baseball. And the Blue Jays are still at the bottom. So you can't really just blame the baseball here. Yeah, the most surprising underperformer of the bunch for me is Bo Bichette. I mean, oh, he does swing a lot. But we're talking about a guy that is a top 15 offensive player in the big leagues, probably, when everything's going right. He's been below average to this point. Matt Chapman hasn't had the rebound that I expected. And both Teoscar Hernandez and Lourdes Gurriel Jr. have been slow starters through the first 40 games or so as well. It's it's a pile of players that, other than Chapman, I think because of a longer downturn in performance, which still could turn around, three out of four of those guys should be pretty much what we expected them to be going into the season. So I can understand being a Jays fan and being nervous just because of how well the Yankees are playing, the division you're in, the margins for error in the AL East, but the pitching looks really good. 
and the guys you're hoping for a bounce back from have really good underlying skills to believe in. Yeah, I was I was all prepared to 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 blame the ball for Bobachet's problems because he is an opposite field hitter, right? And and opposite field balls, if you take three to four five feet off of them, they really su- they really suffer. A pulled fly ball goes further just in general than an opposite field fly ball. But I just pulled up Bobachet's splits, and on balls going the other way, so opposite field balls, he has a seven oh six slugging. So that's not it, you know. That's not the one. That's not the problem. Yep, not the problem. The ball is still a recurring topic as uh, as both of you are speaking to players on a regular basis. And it does seem like the the detailed complaints about the baseball right now are a little bit different than they have been in the past. It seems like more of the focus now is on the material variation from ball to ball, like the, the slickness, even in some cases, the shape. <laughs> like what, what is going on? Why is there seemingly no end in sight to these concerns about the ball? And, and what's the latest round of, of complaints and, and gripes that you guys are hearing? <laughs> uh, you know, you want to take that one first? I feel like you're our certified baseball expert. I know the ball is my least favorite beat, but uh, I, I just spent some time in the A's and Twins clubhouse, and I'm going to write about it uh, for tomorrow. But the the thing that is so upsetting to them is not only sort of this year's ball-to-ball variation, which may be caused by the interaction between the humidor and the ball. If you imagine taking water out of a ball and then putting it back in, which which the humidor is doing on average in most of the new places, then you can imagine just sort of like a shrinking ball re reinflating, you know, like, of course, it's going to be weird and maybe different from ball to ball. And maybe the seams are higher in some places and others. But the the real complaint that I'm getting is again you know, like, like I heard th- there were some players in the in the A's clubhouse who were like, okay, so the ball changed, and y'all told us we have to hit the ball high because now the ball rewards that. So we all have to hit high fly balls, and that's there was a whole change, and we did all that. We did all that, and it was great. And now the ball changes, and now you tell us we got to hit it low. Which one is it? Which one is it? Do we got to hit it high? We got to hit it low. What do we got to do? And, you know, I was talking to Max Kepler, and he's like, you know, sometimes I feel like it's too much information. And this is, Max Kepler is a guy who's actually reduced his launch angle. And he said, in response to the way the ball was flying. So he's actually in the process of making an adjustment to this ball. And the last bit that just infuriates me as an analyst is that the humidor may change effects over the course of the season. The ball may fly out further in August and all the people that did change would be like, Oh crap, got to, you know, start tinting the ball high again. You know? So I think it's just uh, frustrating for them as a players to have so much variation in the, 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 the thing they use. And yes, basketball changed vendors and you know, they, they, or they changed how the basketball is made. There was like a one year blip in three point percentage and there's something there. Uh, football's had deflate gate. There's, there are some issues with the with the balls in other sports, and, and and actually in soccer, Kepler reminded me of this. Soccer, almost every new tournament, there's like a new ball sponsor, and so then there are complaints about the ball in soccer a lot. But right. the one difference is those balls are all are all machine made, and baseballs are handmade, and that's just wild. In fact, Kepler was surprised to hear that uh, because. You know, that's just going to add another layer of year-to-year variation, ball-to-ball variation. I love humans. I'm not a robot. But uh, when it comes to making balls and making thousands of balls, maybe it's not that big a surprise that it's they're different from, from ball-to-ball. Can we just stop for one second, though, and acknowledge that Eno said, I love humans, I'm not a robot, which is exactly what a robot <laughs> yeah. would say oh, if a robot were oh, trying to convince oh. you sure. that he wasn't a robot. <laughs> True, true. I have two quick points because i it's one of my least favorite topics as well as baseball yeah. because there's nothing you can do about it. Um, right. I think players complain about it because they have no say in it. Yeah. It's something that MLB controls and because MLB has messed with it over the years and there is a, there's just no trust in terms of mm-hmm. the instrument, right? So I think that's part of it. I think an easy solution to that is to have a, a board of players, hitters, pitchers, um, a couple of them that represent that group 
and have them more involved in the actual process. Not, hey, this is your baseball. That's it. We're done. Have them more involved in the process. Now, Be more I don't know if that can happen. Right. But MLB also owns Rawlings, right? And so a part of this is just the erosion of trust. Players think it's some kind of like, you know, conspiracy and like alonzo was happening. saying they're, they're trying yes. to take money out of our pockets yes now that is a, a, a certain group of players let me tell you who's very happy with this fly ball pitchers <laughs> yeah right pitchers in general <laughs> pitchers in general are not complaining i was with uh spent a couple days with houston when they were in uh, dc and that's a fly ball staff who mm. has had amazing results coincidence i think not Many balls have died on the warning tracks this year. And if you have a good defense and Houston has an elite defense, they are head and shoulders. I think they're plus 12 um, over the closest American League team, according to fan graphs in that DEF defensive metric. Mm-hmm. Um, they're head and shoulders above so they can chase those balls down and really make an impact. Mm-hmm. So you wonder if this continues, um, do the fly ball pitchers really have – more of an advantage. Do you see a lot of these guys with, with huge home run totals that are far below that right now? Flyball pitchers are strikeout pitchers. So, you know, yes, it's, uh, I do think that we might be on our way to some, some better baseball in the future, but right now I don't think it's, I don't think this is ideal. You know, the, no. the batting average is like two thirty. you know, across the league. But That's hitters pretty have awful. to change is the, the, this is forcing people who complained about the three true outcomes. This is going to force them to hit the ball in the gap. Kepler, I mean, this is exactly what Kepler's doing, you know, and maybe that is if, if more hitters did that, then it, like because Kepler was a guy who hit 211, but hit 30 homers because he he launched the ball in the air and he was doing that. And he literally I said, I said, hey, this new launch angle is good for your batting average. And he goes, yo, I don't think batting average is it, man. Yeah. <laughs> here, here's he said, the I don't think though. batting average is the thing, man. <laughs> he was laughing at batting average. How far have we come? True. Yeah, because people so don't get paid for it. Jake Rizzi was saying like it was got it's gotten so out of control where it was like okay every single team one through nine could hit thirty home runs. How? Yeah, you know what I mean. This now that take, was twenty nineteen was bad. This is what I think people don't realize: the ball isn't dead. It's back to where it was pre mm-hmm. like three four years ago. So there's still going to be guys with elite power. There's still guys hitting home runs. You look at Judge. You look at Stanton. You look at Byron Buxton. Right? There's still guys hitting home runs. Except now it's just the elite power hitters that are doing it. It's not Freddie Galvez in thirty or whatever. Yes. Yeah, and I, I think it, I think that is a good first step. But the second step is as important as this step, which is do something about the strikeouts. Because <laughs> right now we have all the strikeouts and none of the homers, and that's not super compelling. Right. If you're going to have all those strikeouts, you needed to have the increase in homers. So we need that next adjustment, as you're saying. And I, I mean, I think the. The the hard thing to really imagine is that we could flash forward to mid-August when the weather is gross for most of the country, and it's 85, 90 degrees at first pitch. It's really humid, and the ball's going to play differently. And the things that were working for the first 40 games will no longer be working. And it's maybe be it weird, swings man. back. Maybe it becomes 2019 again. Maybe it, maybe the extreme could be because the ball will be dry much. and the ball flies better. This is this is something that a science thing that is not it doesn't make sense to me. But ball flies better through humid air. Uh, the wa- water molecules are actually easier to push out of the way than air molecules. That does that seems weird to me. But uh, in any case, uh, I think they're lighter. Water molecules are lighter. And so uh, uh, it flies better through humid air. It flies better in hot air. And if the ball is drier relative to what it's been in the past because it's been in the humidor, yes, we could have an August that looks more like at least like, you know, 2020 or something. Yeah. So you get this massive change in the run environment from April and May to the rest of the season. I don't know if that's necessarily what you want either. Like that's That's not a level of consistency throughout the season that is good. I realize you can't control the weather, but if you're messing with the balls in this new way and you're getting this unusual shape to offensive production, that might not be good either. What if baseball was just like, okay, now we hit 230 with no homers in April and in August, everyone hits 260 and and everyone's hitting homers. That would be like a that would be like a weird shape to the season. I, I there already is elements there, you know, in the, in a regular season, but that I think that would be if it was like more extreme and like then Freddie Galvis gets on a 30 homer pace in August, like it would be kind of strange. 
I don't want that again. I don't want players like that hitting 30 home runs in a season, no. to be completely clear, because it just it waters it down. It devalues the achievement on a, on a micro sort of level to have it happen like that. One weird thing about this season, though, is with offense being down so much, there aren't that many hitters that are having these breakout sorts of seasons. Right? Naturally, offense is down. Run environment is is bad for, for offense. You look at some of the players that have actually taken big steps forward this year. And Jazz Chisholm Jr. is among the young players to take the biggest step forward so far. He is plus 71 in WRC+. Plus compared to last season. So that's that's what a full-on breakout looks like. And I think with with Jazz there were there were rumblings that there could be big steps forward in the underlying profile. What we're seeing is a lower K rate. That's a big adjustment for him as someone that had pretty high strikeout rates even in the upper levels of the minor leagues and he's hitting the ball in the air a lot more than he did last season. I mean as it stands right now, Jazz is on pace for almost like MVP votes in terms of what he's doing on a per game basis. There's power, there's speed, and there's a much improved slash line. Britt, you're actually getting a chance to see Jazz in Miami right now. And on top of all of this, he's just an exciting player, like a clear, like good for the game sort of player because he's more like a must see player than a lot of guys we've seen uh, break into the league in the last few years. Yeah, he is. And I've got a, a piece that's hopefully going to come out on him soon. And um, what's been impressive, though, is you watch a game like last night and, you know, he hits the home run to tie it. He hits the sack fly to tie it. He is hitting the ball a lot more, like you said, in the air. I asked him about that. He said he didn't really change anything physically. Um, he spent a lot of time working on like the mental component of the game. Uh, he credited Barry Larkin. He said he was a, a huge help to him. I think Miguel Rojas has been a guy who's really kind of mentored him. Um, Rojas told him last year, like, listen, I know you want to win MVPs. I know you want to win all-stars, but you have to look at it as a game by game basis. You have to like not look at the finish line and look at it as game by game, play by play at bat by at bat. And I think he's really taken that to heart. The next step for him is really going to be having better at-bats early on in the game. Uh, a lot of people still think he kind of hones in more depending on the situation. And so I think if you're going to really kind of nitpick about what he needs to get better at, it's going to be um, drilling down on that first at-bat or two in the game. But he's made strides all around. And Don Mattingly was saying yesterday, like, do we realize how small he is? He's maybe 170 pounds mm -hmm. to have that kind of power when we're talking about the dead ball and how hard it is to hit it out right now. Really impressive, really impressive. And I think he's he's kind of put Miami on the map in some regard. Right. People who don't know who the Marlins are still know who Jazz Chisholm is. And I think that he's just been a really it's been good to see his personality kind of come forward and then also him play well because I think last year you know that personality is great but when you're not doing well it grates on people people don't take it the right way so what you're seeing now is like both things together finally which is just really good for the game and also really good for the Marlins who like very quietly are a pretty good team we know about their young pitching uh we know that the Mets may have some issues and the Marlins I think I have won five one five of six against the Nationals they haven't had a super hard schedule um, but they're a team that could make some noise here as we get deeper into the season. Yeah, it's it's been really fun to watch. And, you know, one thing that's really interesting to me about what he's done is kind of just watching his, you know, his approach through the minor leagues and then his first year and, the and you know, thinking about all the, the, the complaints that people had about his, you know, bat to ball, you know, his strikeout rate, his, you know, his approach at the plate. And he had these years where he had like really big walk rates, but he also had the worst strikeout rates of his career where I think he was trying to be a little bit different than who he is, right? Like he had coaching, coaches telling him, oh, yeah, be more patient, be more patient. Dude is just an aggressive guy. Like he, that's you know, if you think you look at his personality, he's like he wants to hit. He wants to hit the ball. He wants to hit it far. And what you've seen from the first year in the big leagues to the second year is he is more aggressive this year. But some of that coaching still matters because he's reaching less. He's chasing balls outside the zone less, but in the zone he's being more aggressive. And that extra swinging is he's getting to balls before he strikes out. You know, some guys if they don't have great bat to ball skills, if they just sit there and wait. 
then they're going to get a called strike three or they're going to get a swinging strike three. And that wasn't a great idea. Why did I wait? I just built up the count against me. Right. For him, I think it's almost like the Josh Hamilton situation where like if he can swing and get to that ball before strike three, that's going to be better for him because he's going to put the ball in play and do something good with it. So I, I, I think, you know, it's not one size fits all. In other words, like not everybody in baseball should swing less. Uh, he's the one guy where I think swinging more makes sense. It, it makes the most out of his skills. And uh, we're seeing basically a breakout in every way that you could want. As as Derek said, you know, doing everything you could want out of him. Uh, he's doing it all at the same time. And for what it's worth, I looked at the, you know, game by game graphs. It's not like this. He did this early in the season. He's just coasting off of it. He's hitting more fly balls with every game. Uh, he's the strikeout rates going down with every game. Like he's this is legit. Are you struggling to close deals? B2B selling is tougher than ever, and that's why I want to tell you about LinkedIn Sales Navigator. One more great product from LinkedIn. You're there to network, you're there to look for jobs, you're there to post jobs, and how about LinkedIn Sales Navigator? It's a sales intelligence platform that helps professionals effectively prospect and engage high-value customers, drive higher revenue, and increase sales performance. Sales Navigator helps you target the right buyers, surface key signals such as job changes or which accounts you should prioritize and shows you hidden allies so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date first-party data enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash baseball show. That is linkedin.com slash baseball show for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash baseball show and get started. Among the uh, the other players, by the way, who have shown similar improvements in WRC+, Plus. This year versus last year, it's a lot of guys that we've been waiting on for a little while. Josh Naylor, who just recently landed on the IL, and Manuel Margot, who also landed on the IL. Uh, Willie Castro just got another opportunity in Detroit in the last little while. He's up considerably in terms of overall offensive production. And then Tyler Stevenson, perhaps a silver lining in Cincinnati, seeing him take another step forward behind the plate. Um, because he, he was good last year as a hitter, kind of sharing that role with Tucker Barnhart. Uh, perhaps the most surprising player of all. I took a look at the barrel rate jumps year over year. Paven Smith has the biggest increase in barrel rate from 2021 to 2022. It's an Arizona team that has really struggled to score runs. We talked about them maybe being a little better than people expected. I think that's a fair description of, of what they've been to this point. But uh, the major issue for them is, is scoring runs. I think the, the Marlins underrated point, though, is one that's worth drilling into a little bit, because if you looked at the Marlins versus the Phillies and you had to pick one for the rest of the season, who actually finishes with more wins this season, it's closer than I thought it was at the start of the season. Part of it is the Marlins offense being a little bit better. Part of it is that the Marlins pitching is as good as advertised. They are good at preventing runs. I hope for the sake of, of just his own health, we get to see Jesus Lazardo back at some point this season. But seeing him go down with an arm injury is really concerning. It's a forearm strain for Lazardo because he was among the players having a breakout on the pitching side through the first seven weeks of this season. Yeah, I think also when you look at the Phillies, you look at Bryce Harper shut down from throwing for a couple of weeks too, right? This was an MVP last year. So the gap is smaller between the Phillies and Marlins than most people realize, I think, anyway, as we sit here because of the, the injury factor and, you know, the way that the Marlins have played so far. Now, they have really they haven't really played the Mets. You know, they, they've had kind of a softer schedule. So I'm curious if we do this podcast a month from now, if we're still saying the same thing about the Marlins. But there is really a lot to like about that team right now. Yeah, the surprise for me, they have a plus 19 run differential. It's the best among teams currently below 500. And, you know, I think that if you think about, like, what, like, on these teams, like, who could get better? Yeah, Reese Hoskins could could play better. Aaron Nola could pitch a little better. I don't know. I, like, I, I, but it is obvious when I look at the Marlins team, who I think could play better. Jorge Soler and Avicella Garcia, their big free agent signings, have not played well. There are some under-the-hood things that look okay for them. I, there is a total possibility of rebound from both of them. 
Um, but it, they are way below where they have been in their career and what they've done in the past. And if they play back to, to the back of their baseball cards, that's like, a, I think, a bigger shift than what I see coming for the Phillies. You know what I mean? In terms of like, you know, who's underperforming for the Phillies, who's underperforming the Marlins. It's more obvious. And then on top of that, let, let's say they do lose Lizardo for whatever amount of time. The Marlins are are well equipped to replace starting pitcher injury. Max Meyer by I have these stuff numbers that look at the physical shape of, of pitches. I've seen the stuff numbers in the minor leagues for Max Meyer, and they are absolutely on par with anybody on level with Grayson Rodriguez, who for most people is the number one pitching prospect in baseball. So Max Meyer, if he comes up to replace Jesus Lazardo, they may not even miss a single step. They may even improve at that position. That's uh, how good Max Meyer is. And then Edward Cabrera is a, is also decent, but he's he's coming back from injury, a little bit wild, not not having as great a season in the minor leagues. But, um, you know, they do have some pitching depth. So it's it's on Jorge Soler and Avisail Garcia a little bit. But if they do that, then, and Jesus Aguilar, if th- those three kind of get going again, along with Jazz, then they could actually have uh, one of their better lineups they've had in a long time. So my method for looking for pitching breakouts, I, I was looking at WRC plus changes for hitters 2021 versus 2022 using that Fangraphs season stat grid page. I was looking at K minus BV percentage for pitchers to see who's improved the most with the kind of a good overall pitching metric. The biggest improver, Eric Lauer, up 14.2% in strikeout minus walk rate. So he's just under 30% for the season. Not a surprise. Shane McClanahan, one of the biggest risers. He was already good. He's even better, kind of moving into the elite of the elite area right now. Lizardo was third. Shohei Otani doesn't count as a breakout. He's better this year as a pitcher. Kind of fun <laughs> that that's happening. Uh, Keegan Aiken, who's come up on a few episodes of Rates and Barrels among the biggest risers. We talked about Steven Matz on yesterday's episode as well. Tyler Anderson's in there. And then Zach Gallen, another Diamondback. It's happening. The Diamondbacks are are proving us right on that very soft prediction of they're just a little bit better than you think they are, which is how we've described this podcast for the better part of <laughs> its entire existence. Yes. It's the Brent Strom effect in Arizona. I don't I don't know what the effect is for us, but you know. <laughs> <laughs> no idea. They were getting lucky at this point. But Zach Gallen being healthy, I think, is a big part of why uh, he's actually performing really well. He had that little forearm injury that he got from swinging the bat, which uh, he won't get again, at least in that same way. Um, I've always liked him because he's got a lot of pitches. And and for, for, for what it's worth, if there's a sort of underlying theme for all these guys, and in fact, I think it's true for every single one of them, because not every model or not every approach will have predicted all these breakouts one thing that is true about all these pitches, they have a lot of pitches. You know, Eric Lauer has like four or five pitches and he just started, you know, he went to the cutter more this year and, and added like a mile per hour in his fastball. Shane McClanahan has four legit pitches. Uh, Lizardo is at least a three pitch guy, but he throws two fastballs. Um, you know, Aiken has four pitches. Matt's has four pitches. Tyler Anderson has five. I think Gallon has four pitches. So I think, you know, that is one thing that is hard to model is the value just of having more pitches. And I think that it's always a good thing when you have a young pitcher that's throwing a bunch of pitches. I, I think of Mackenzie Gore. He has this curveball and this changeup that, you know, are okay. It's great that he throws them because maybe next year the, the curveball is better or the changeup is better. Then he takes another step forward. That's what happened with Shane McClanahan. He improved his secondary pitches. He improved the shape on his fastball. I talked to him about it. And he said, Instead of trying to throw it as hard as I can, now I'm trying to spin it as hard as I can. And he said that simple little cue made all of his pitches better. That's a big Houston thing, though, too. They don't mm. that you know they care more about the spin than anything else. It's I, I like this breakout list. I think this Otani guy is going to be pretty good. Yeah. Um, might be, might be all right. <laughs> it says it says on the rundown, not a breakout. <laughs> I did cover myself. I did put in a, like a built-in like I'm not saying this is. <laughs> like new, completely new, but it's interesting to see uh, on that side, especially. I, I wondered if Otani had sort of peaked as a pitcher last year. Never assume anything about Shohei Otani and, and peaking and, and not having another level because I think he'll he'll make you look really dumb. Uh, the interesting thing here with Lauer, too, by the way, is that I think the the narrative around the trade that the Padres and Brewers made a couple of years ago, the one that sent Trent Grisham and then Zach Davies to San Diego in exchange for Luis Urias and Eric Lauer, 
that was a, in the shortened 2020 season. The reaction was, oh my goodness, David Stearns got fleeced by A.J. Preller. The Padres smashed this trade. Trent Grisham looks amazing. Eric Lauer is just a guy, and Urias doesn't even have much of a role because I think he was hurt that year and might have spent some time on the, the COVID IL, if I remember correctly. Uh, Urias comes back in 2021, has the the hitting breakout that a lot of prospect analysts were, were hoping for, and it looked a little more even. And then Eric Lauer in the second half showed flashes of what he's doing right now. And now Lauer looks like another great starting pitcher to put up with that big three in Milwaukee. And Grisham, unfortunately for the Padres, really off to a slow start this year. That's a funny arc for that trade because now it looks like the Brewers crushed it. This is what it's like to analyze baseball. Like you're right and then you're wrong and then you're right again. Like I think that Grisham, I think he has an excellent eye. I think he will be better again in the future. I don't know if he will be as good as we thought he could be, but I think he'll be better than he is now. So I think that this trade could have another, you know, have <laughs> another four. way, another chapter where we look back and say, oh, you know what? It was kind of fair, you know, <laughs> like, uh, I mean, the one thing that that Milwaukee did get out of that was more years of control from Lauer than they were going to get out of that other, that other player. So even if they thought the pitchers just lined up and were about the same, they had Lauer for longer. And that was kind of that was going to be important for them. Uh, but, yeah, it's it's so hard um, to to analyze things because uh, players are changing. They're getting better and worse. And. You know, every time you look at one thing, you can you can uh, you can convince yourself of something, and then you know a month later, you're like, oh man, <laughs> David Stearns fleeced AJ Preller. <laughs> <laughs> that is baseball. You can also make numbers say anything you want, depending on when you start looking. Right, the sample size. Right. It, it is. Yeah, yeah. Because if you look at if you look at the deal just using this year's stats, you're like, wow. Yeah, yeah, 2020 happened, and Trent Grisham was, was good really in that shortened season yeah. and yeah. still has underlying skills that we like. So this is not me saying David Stearns wins, but it's just it's interesting how much the the way you would look at that trade has changed pretty much each year since it actually took place. I want to highlight one last name on that list real quick, uh, because we talked about it on Rates and Barrels this, this week, but um, Keegan Aiken is uh, a brand new type of pitcher. There's, a, there's now a two to three inning pitcher. And I don't know if it's brand new like this year, you know, but in terms of like the last two, three, four years, there, there's a new pitcher out there now, the three inning pitcher, the bulk pitcher that'll give you 60 to 70 innings. And the Rays are kind of trying to tease Drew Rasmussen out of that. And the Orioles themselves have Tyler Wells. They're trying to kind of tease him out of that, you know, from that 50 to 60 pitch into the 70 to 80 pitch. But we now have a whole spectrum of pitchers. And this is something I thought that the Rays really, when they broke baseball, they, they broke a model that said, you're either a one-inning pitcher or you're a seven-inning pitcher. And that's it. There is no in-between. And I think now in baseball, we have two-inning guys, three-inning guys, four-inning guys. Um, it's I, I don't know if it's great for fans because, you know, who's Tyler Wells and why is he piggybacking with Aiken tonight? I get it. You know, maybe you'd know who Tyler Wells was if he went seven and seven shut out. But for the for the... For the Orioles, it makes more sense because they're going to get more out of a Wells-Aiken combo than they would if they started either guy and pushed them seven. So it's uh, if we do change rosters and make the, make teams only have 12 pitchers or 11 pitchers, we can kind of get rid of some of this. But I choose to also celebrate it because Keegan Aiken is, is doing some cool things. He's just doing it three innings at a time. Well, the other thing you get to think about and yeah, maybe it's not great from a marketing perspective, but also if you just let a guy go out there and get smacked for five innings, no one's going to remember that guy either because he's getting sent down. <laughs> right. and, and that's what Keegan Aiken used to years. do, right? <laughs> I also think from a development perspective, if you give someone a chance, if, if, if the options were you're going six or you're going one, if you're going one, you're not developing enough pitches to ever to go, go six. six someday. Very rare. If you're going three, you can start to work on that second pitch or that third pitch that you need. And suddenly you're actually developing a starter maybe at the big league level. You're problem solving at the big league level with a guy that's helping you more in a three inning role than he would have helped you in a one inning role. So 
I don't hate it. I think there's a lot more good than bad, even if it's uh, aesthetically different. We talked about the tag team videos. If you have tandem players, what do you think about this, Britt, from a marketing perspective? If you knew that it was going to be Wells and Aiken together and they were marketed like the Legion of Doom and they had this entry <laughs> video together and then the, there's like there's B-roll of them high-fiving and making sandwiches in the clubhouse and smashing beers together. You could together. Play with this, yeah. You could okay. do these things, right? Does does this work? Can we make this appeal? I'm aching for Wells. It works if the two guys have personality and they're always together in that regard. It doesn't work if it's like this rotating cast of characters, right? Mm, uh, yeah. It doesn't work if it's like the Rays opener and there's like cast of carousel of guys. It works if I know it's going to be Wells and Aiken. Then, yeah, then you're it's the Bash Brothers, right? Then you're all in. Then you can do this marketing stuff. But if they keep rotating around who these guys are pitching with, then no, you can't market that. In my <laughs> I, you know, the, there was the idea that you would have because uh, right now in San Diego they have seven starting pitchers and they're keeping them all on the roster. And last night Blake Snell went uh, three and Nick Martinez went four. It works if you have thirteen pitchers. It still could get you in some trouble late in the season because you're you're keeping these seven starting pitchers. You might have to burn a really good starting pitcher in a in a day that you're going to lose the game anyway. Um, but uh, there was the idea that it would be Snell and Clevenger. And you had this idea of like Snellinger. And it, if it, you call it Snellinger and then Snell and Clevenger are like totally different people. Snell's like a gamer, you know, type kid type. And Clevenger's like this out there, you know, kind of hippie-ish uh, type. Like you could, you could, you could do, you could market Snellinger. Oh, of course. Yeah. I mean, you could make uh, like shirts where they're kind of like one person with like two heads and the different silhouettes and <laughs> yeah because yeah. it sounds or sounds like a like a monster right? you could have uh you could have them on a tandem bicycle and, and snell's not even pedaling but he's like yeah. playing an old vintage game boy and, and <laughs> like there's all sorts of stuff you could Clevenger's do with this. all sweaty <laughs> yeah clevenger's doing all the extra pedaling i mean look they could just, you gotta have some fun with this stuff if you're gonna change the way the game looks like let's let's celebrate it in some new and, and interesting uh, sorts of ways well, now let's get into this week's player focus brought to you by Sunday leadoff on Peacock. The spotlight for this week goes on Nolan Arenado. I said it on this show just a few weeks ago. I thought Nolan Arenado was at the beginning of a long and graceful decline with what we saw in his first season with the Cardinals a year ago. He's talked a bit about this in, in recent weeks. He's made a lot of adjustments over the course of the offseason. The results really speak for themselves. And I think Part of the reason the Cardinals look a little bit different this season in terms of how they're winning games is that Arenado is playing more like MVP Arenado at the plate again. They're 10th in Major League Baseball in runs scored per game, which is something I did not expect to say about this Cardinals team, especially if you told me, oh yeah, Tyler O'Neill, he's going to get off to a slow start. He's not going to do much through the first six weeks of the season. He's not going to be the guy that he was last year. And Dylan Carlson, that breakout you're expecting from him, no, that's that's not going to be there either been amazing and i think you know one thing you can do is bet on guys leaving colorado like hitters leaving colorado seem to be better i know, I know trevor story is not having a great year but the whole matt holiday thing it really worked for nolan arenado when he left and one thing that he really changed when he left uh when he left the cozy confines of coors field is that he started pulling the ball in the air with the best you know in terms of Pulling the ball in the air, he's top 10 this year. Up there with Anthony Rizzo and Josh Donaldson and Byron Buxton, who've hit a lot of homers with that approach. And it's something that he did as soon as he landed in St. Louis. So I don't know if he saw the ballpark dimensions, saw that he that he needed to make the most out of his power in that way, but pulled fly balls are where homers live. And we're seeing uh, an amazing sort of... like I would say he's shifted the conversation from you know, what will he look like in this graceful decline to, wow, he's got a couple more peak years left. And I think he's put himself in the Hall of Fame conversation in a way that he wasn't necessarily before. Yeah. What I like is, yeah, he's making contact at a a really rapid clip. He talked and he's talked before, as you mentioned, about all the adjustments that he made. What's crazy to you guys is the timing. He can opt out of his contract after this year. And Mm -hmm. I'm with you, Derek. I thought his best years were behind him. He was just going to ride this deal out. But more and more, it's looking like, you know, if the season ends today, it's him and Manny Machado for the NL MVP. I think Machado has been a little bit better uh, numbers wise. But this guy could opt out of his deal and get an even better one, which would have seemed preposterous a year ago. 
right? And so the way he's been playing, and he's talked a lot about you know, Albert Pujols helping him and just like that group with the Cardinals, and we mentioned this, just bringing back the band again a little bit, seemed like a a very focused group. They've really, I don't want to say overperformed, but I don't know if people expected this out of the Cardinals at all preseason-wise. And Arenado, obviously a big, big part of that, but I just think the personnel that they've assembled – this is just like a really fun team to watch. Part of what makes this offense as a whole so dangerous, they do not have much swing and miss overall. I mean, Paul DeYoung got sent down. O'Neal is always going to have that as part of what he brings, but he makes so much hard contact when he connects. You're willing to make that trade-off. Arenado has struck out less than 15% of the time again this year. Tommy Edmond under a 15% K rate. Paul Goldschmidt under 20%. Harrison Bader has held some of that gain. I mean, Juan Yepes, who they just called up. Yeah, this team... Yeah is really difficult to deal with. Yeah, first in the big leagues in strikeout rate. And if the ball's not going to go out, you know, in, in a homer way, then you really want to make a lot of contact. They're doing exactly what you want to do in today's run environment. So, and, and another thing that's interesting, if we fast forward a little bit to the postseason, the one stat that becomes more important uh, in the postseason than it is in the regular season is team strikeout rate. It's a, it's a powerful predictor of success in the postseason. So we've seen that with Houston, yes. right? Time and time again. Hundred percent. They do well with their with the with their strikeout rate. They really became the Houston we know now when they cut guys like Chris Carter and cut all the big strikeout rates and improved their strikeout rate. Even the Cubs, when they won it all, they had one of the best year over year strikeout rate improvements. So. This uh, bodes well for them, not only now, but like all season long. And it's not necessarily something that I saw coming in terms of uh, this being like the best contact team in baseball. It's really interesting, too, just thinking back to the the pull approach of Arenado. I mean, the spray chart was crystal clear last year. Everything was to the pull side. That's still been the case this year. He's even pulling the ball more in 2022 than he did in 2021. But if the ball remains deadened, if the ball is not flying the way that it has in recent years, not having to hit it as far by pulling it is actually one of the hacks to continue hitting home runs. So I wonder if that's going to be an in-season adjustment that hitters can make. I mean, we talked about Max Kepler not trying to launch the ball quite as much, but I think if you have the ability to pull the ball more than you have in the past, you're previously trying to spray all over the place because you wanted a good batting average and a good OBP, Maybe this is the adjustment we see other hitters make. An oppo fly ball is not a good thing to hit right now. Right. It's always been tough in, in St. Louis, right? As a pitcher-friendly environment. Right. But in 2019, you could hit some oppo fly balls and they'd go out. I mean, I think that's my defining image of 2019 is the opposite fly ball where you're like, can of corn? <laughs> Home run. <laughs> yeah. The, yeah. It, the, the opposite image is now like, oh, nice. Pulled fly ball, home Oh, not a home run. <laughs> An impressive series of adjustments, though, this winter by Nolan Arenado to get back to this level. And I'm with Eno. I think there is more of a Hall of Fame resume in place. It's certainly encouraging to see the possibility of a few more very productive seasons before that decline phase would possibly kick in for him. This has been this week's Player Focus. Change up your weekend with MLB Sunday leadoff only on Peacock. We have to go. If you'd like to sign up for a subscription to The Athletic, you can do that for $1 a month for the first six months at theathletic.com slash baseball show. You can find us on Twitter. Eno is at Eno Saris. Britt is at Britt underscore Giroli. I am at Derek Van Riper. The Athletic Baseball Show returns on Monday. At the 3-0 show, you've always got the green light.